Well, good morning, folks. Once again, good morning. A uh, number of visitors here this morning. I'm so thrilled that you came. Uh, like, I, as a guy who's working full-time, know how precious weekends are. And so you sort of get to Friday afternoon, you're like, it's here. And so to be here this morning with us, giving up half your, half your Sunday, it's precious. So... I value that, and thank you so much for doing it. Thanks so much for coming. We're, we're really thankful that you're here. We're in the beginning, at the beginning of an Advent series we're doing. Uh, Advent simply means coming, and traditionally it's a, it's a tradition of the church, Advent from the 1st of December to the 24th of December, right leading up to Christmas, and when Christians all around the world celebrate the coming of Jesus, in two ways, both the coming of Jesus as a child and the coming of Jesus as we wait for him to come again. And so this series that we've titled, two-part series, Here is Love. And we'll be looking at this week about the promise of love and next week about the arrival of love. Um, so we're thrilled that you can come and be a part of that. Uh, in, in light of that, let me just take another opportunity to invite you along to next week's message and, of course, the Christmas Eve message in particular, where we'll be really digging deep into the love that we see uh, around Christmas. Well, today we're going to be looking at a passage from the Old Testament, uh, from Isaiah. So if you have a Bible with you, and you can open it up to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, we're going to be looking at this idea of promise in the Old Testament, um, specifically promise as it relates to Christmas and love. And so if you can open up to Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read from verse 1 and then uh, pray. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over its kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before your throne this morning and we ask for grace. We ask for mercy. Lord, as we read your word, would you help us to understand it? Would you help us to see the one who it speaks of? Would you help us to see your son, our Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, would you help me in my weakness, Lord, to preach your word faithfully? Would you speak clearly through me, Lord? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, for those of you who know me, you'll know that I often deny this, but I'm a bit of a a nerd, closet nerd. And uh, for those of you that are also closet nerds, uh, you'll know that on August 25 this year, something very special happened. And that something special is that the Voyager 1 passed finally out of our solar system into interstellar space. It's the first man-made object to ever reach this distance and, and it's a real milestone for, for mankind and for NASA in particular. And it was back in the 5th of September 1977, in fact, that the Voyager 1 was launched, first launched. And the, the, the purpose behind the Voyager 1 being launched at Cape Canaveral on that day, on that sunny 5th of September was to to videograph, to take photos of the outer edges of our solar system. And so the Voyager, which was about 750 kilos in weight, about the size of a small car, was launched up into space with the latest of 1970s uh, digital communication technology, uh, including a, a digital camera which was able to be remotely powered. And the Voyager was a huge success. It's been one of uh, our most successful space ventures. And in fact, it was quite early on in its mission, in 1980, that it it completed its set mission of uh, photographing, videoing the the moons that orbit around both Saturn and Jupiter. And so we learn a lot about Saturn and Jupiter. But even though it completed its mission, the Voyager has continued to travel further and further and further away from Earth. And though its mission had been completed in 1990, one of the most amazing events, one of the most significant events of the Voyager's lifespan occurred when Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer working for NASA at the time, instructed the the flight attendants back at Cape Canaveral to point the camera of the Voyager back from where it came. And it produced a very famous photograph Um, which we'll get up on the screen for you to see right now. And you can barely make out this screen here, these lines travelling across the screen, as you can see here. The lines coming across are the rays from the sun, which comes into view back in the distant distant picture of, of our solar system. The rays from the sun come into view. And what you may or may not be able to see here from six billion kilometers away from Earth is a tiny, pale, almost insignificant blue dot. A tiny blue dot. That pale blue dot. I've got it blown up even bigger because I don't want you to miss it. I want you to see it. 0.12 of a pixel. That dot which Carl Sagan describes as a piece of dust suspended in a ray of light. That's us. That's the earth. On this tiny, pale blue dot is everyone you've ever known, everyone you've ever loved. Tiny fraction of a pixel. All of human history tiny blue dot in the vastness of space. Every memory you have from that tiny blue dot. All of our culture, all of our language, just a little blob, tiny dot in the vastness of space. And in light of this, Carl Sagan says this, He says, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, 
How fervent their hatreds, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. Hear this. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from anywhere to save us from ourselves. Carl Sagan sees this tiny little blip, this tiny little dot, and he says, Surely we're all alone, all by ourselves, completely insignificant. And my question for us is Carl Sagan right? Are we all alone in the universe, all by ourselves, unimportant, unloved, doomed to destroy ourselves? I think we can feel all alone on a cosmic scale, but we can also feel all alone on a personal scale, can't we? And for many of us, particularly right at this time, right at Christmas, It can really feel like a knife in the chest. We can really feel completely all alone. Even here in a big city, five million people in Sydney. And sometimes you can find yourself walking into work through the city and seeing faces going by, people everywhere, but completely alone. Absolutely alone. Feeling like... If, if anyone really knew me, if anyone really understood me, would they still love me? Alone. You could be married and feel alone. You could be surrounded by family and friends, but feel relationally completely alone. Millions of people but feeling like a speck in a crowd on a speck in the universe. Well, if you've ever wondered whether you're loved, I believe the Bible speaks powerfully to you. I believe the Bible speaks to you with the greatest promise of love ever seen. And that's what we want to look at today the greatest promise of love ever made. And so this message is called Love Promised. And it just has three quick points, three simple points. Uh, Firstly, the problem. Secondly, the promise. And thirdly, the prince. Well, firstly, I want to spend some time before we get to our text looking at the problem, looking at What's wrong with the world? I mean, how did we get this way? I mean, what seems to be going wrong with this planet? I mean, think about it, wars. You know, I was reading in the newspaper just this week, they reckon 150,000 people have been killed in Assyria so far across the last two years. 150,000 people. And there's exploitation in this world, isn't there? So much of it. Often we're sheltered to it here, but there is millions of innocent women caught up in the sex slave trade. We thought slavery had ended. It hasn't. Absolutely disgusting exploitation. We we have factories and workers where people are ground down to the bone without a decent day's pay. We have persecution of people of all sorts of religions and demographics, people persecuted just for what they believe. All the time it happens in this world. We have pollution, we have famine, we have disasters. What's happened? What's gone wrong? What's the problem with this world? Well, even more closely to home, I think we feel it as well. One thing I alluded to earlier is relational breakdown. And we feel it, don't we? I think about it. Domestic violence. It's so prevalent. Divorce rates. About one in two marriages these days are doomed to end in divorce. 
We have more people than ever before living alone. In this city, it's 25%. We have people that are more connected than ever before through social media and Facebook, yet we report feeling lonely and isolated more than ever before. One in ten people here in this country report to feeling lonely most of the time. What is happening in this world? Relational breakdown. Where did it all go wrong? What's the problem? Well, according to the Bible, it wasn't always this way. There wasn't always this disconnect, this breakdown, this isolation, this conflict. It wasn't always there. In fact, the Bible says that God made everything in the very beginning and it was good. Genesis 1 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. According to Scripture, people lived in harmony and God with God and with one another. In relational harmony, the Bible says. In Genesis 2.23, it says, Then the man said, This is after God has made Adam and Eve, and placed them in the garden. The man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And hear this in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It's a picture of unity. It's a picture of relational harmony between people. Man and man... Man and woman, people together in harmony with one another and with God. But it didn't stay this way for long, did it? And we're familiar with the story. Man rejects the rule of God. He rejects God's rule and he embraces curse over creator. God places the man and his wife in the garden and says, anything you want, just don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of the tree, you will die. And it doesn't take man long before he says, let me eat of this tree, it seems good and right. And so God comes and sees the man and says, what have you done? I told you not to do this, what have you done? Man has embraced curse over creator. And so God promises conflict between the serpent, who stands for the devil, and people. He promises conflict He promises pain in childbirth and rearing for the woman. And between the man and his wife, he promises conflict. He promises pain in work of the man to provide all the days of his life. For all of his life, the man will toil in fruitless labor. And he promises death. Genesis says, the writer of Genesis says, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. God says, for out of it you you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Man and woman who were once in perfect harmony with God and with one another, now toiling in the dust, facing death. And that one man's act of rebellion against God has continued on into this day. That one man's act of rebellion against God set up a chain reaction of rebellion against the holy God, the creator God, which has continued to this day. And that brings us to what the Bible says is our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is how we can, can we be saved from a holy God? Our greatest problem is how can we, how can we be saved as rebels from a holy God. But I think the difficulty here in in, in Sydney, in the northern suburbs of Sydney, is we don't really believe it. We don't believe we we need to be saved. We we don't. We think, hey, wait wait a second, Brennan, we need to be saved? Come on. I'm a good person. I mean, I often think this way. I'm a good person. I mean, I've got a good education. I'm an upstanding person member of my community. I pay taxes. I give to charity. I work a good job. I work long hours. I provide 
for my family. I'm generous. I'm generous. I'm kind to people. I'm a good person. What do you mean by all this talk of rebelling against God and needing to be saved from the wrath of God? I'm a good person. Well, I think when we ask that question, we haven't properly understood what the Bible teaches about God. We haven't properly understood that our God is a holy God and our God is a just God. Our God is holy. He is mighty and He is holy. He is the Lord of hosts. I used to wonder what Lord of hosts meant. I thought host was like a person who helps other people when they come over for dinner and carries the drinks. But Lord of hosts means Lord of the armies. He is a mighty God. He is a sovereign God. He is a powerful God. Just three chapters before our verse in the book of Isaiah. And if you've got your Bibles open, you can turn there to Isaiah chapter 6. God addresses Isaiah, the, the, the man who wrote this prophecy from which our passage comes. He addresses him. And Isaiah is sent out by God. He has this vision of God that he sees. This amazing vision of God. And God sends him out. And in this vision, he sees of God. He sees God seated on a throne in glory. Angels shielding their faces from before him. The train of his robe, the the tail of God's robe that he's wearing as he sits on his throne is so big, the whole temple is full of it. He is awesome and mighty and powerful. And Isaiah sees him and he says in 6 verse 5, he says, Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my, my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Isaiah sees this vision and he falls on his knees. But the thing about Isaiah is, this is an outstanding man of God. Isaiah is a prophet, a famous prophet. He's an aristocrat and a good man. And even him falls on his knees before a holy God and says, woe is me, I'm unclean, I'm a sinner, I'm defiled. And worships the Lord. And the reason is, is because God is a holy God. His very nature burns against evil. All evil. Even the smallest bit of evil he burns against. Because he's a just judge and he must punish sin. You know, all in the news this week it's been about Simon Gatani, hasn't it? And if you're not familiar with the story, Simon Gatani was this wealthy man living in the center of Sydney who it turns out was a liar and controlling and a violent man and in a violent rage knocked his fiancée unconscious, picked up her body and threw it off the 15th floor of his balcony. And it was in the media this week because the judge who was presiding over the case found him guilty. Guilty as charged. And we get that, don't we? And there's something in us that both mourns over that and rejoices over that. There's something right about that. There's something right when someone who did something horrendous is found to be justly in the wrong. Isn't there? There's even something good about that. But friends, that is the judgment of just us as people. Oh, a holy God, a just God that burns in his essence against all forms of wickedness. How much more? How much more does our God burn against evil in this world and sin? See, our God is such a holy God that he demands 
perfection. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 5:48, instructing the crowds, he says, Therefore, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. His standard is perfection. In James, writing in his letter in James 2.10, he says, If a man his whole life keeps the whole law and just at one point stumbles, he's guilty of breaking the whole thing because he's fallen short of God's standard. You know, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we can see a just God and a holy God. But if we're honest with ourselves, I'd, I think we'd, we don't even meet our own standards, let alone the standards of a holy and righteous God. Now, I was thinking about this just this week. You know, last week, I met up with my sister and... Um, my sister this past, my youngest sister this past year has gone through a lot of really hard stuff. And we were chatting away and she was sharing some really personal things with me. And just through the conversation, I just felt like, you know, I've really failed her as a brother. I've, I just felt like, you know, I haven't been there for her when she's needed it most. And I've been really judgmental of her. Um, that's self-righteousness, you know, just lording it over her. Like, like a Pharisee. Um, but do you know what? That's not even my greatest failure. My greatest failure is I've said to my master, the creator, the king of the universe, away with you. I want to live my life as I please. I want to determine the course of my own life. I don't need you. I've rebelled against my king. And when I stand before a holy, righteous God, all my sins lay bare before him. His nature burning against my sin. I face my imminent destruction. Romans, Paul writes, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. Our greatest problem is how to be saved from a holy God. Well, second point, the promise. Well, we turn now back to our passage and we see that the people of Israel are experiencing the effects of Adam's rebellion. And this, this, this book, Isaiah, was written in the 8th century, so that's about 750 years before Jesus came. And God's chosen people, Israel, have been wicked. Oh man, they've been wicked. You know, they have, they've turned to other gods. They've exploited the poor. They've been unjust towards slaves. They've got blood on their hands, God says. And most importantly, they've turned their back on Him. And so God in the following chapter says, you know, I'm coming. I'm going to cut you down like a forest. And so, the people of God dwelling in Jerusalem are witnessing the unfolding of a disaster. There's this superpower, Assyria, a massive force in the ancient world, and it's coming south. And it's coming through the cities and towns leading up to Israel, and it's pillaging, and it's burning, and it's plundering, and it's destroying. Well, let's read our passage with that in mind. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So you've got people in absolute darkness. They're despairing. They're despairing of life itself. They're, they see what's coming. They're, they're seemingly without hope. But now there's hope. And if you read on, the result is joy. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Why? Why? How can they rejoice in the midst of what's going on? Where does this joy come from? We'll read verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
It's freedom from oppression. It's freedom from oppression of a miraculous sort is what's coming. Just like when Gideon at Midian destroyed a massive army with 300 men. It's massive liberation. It's freedom from oppression. That's what Isaiah is promising. God is promising. Or how? How, how? how can they be free? How can they be free from oppression? Well, read with me verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. To us a child is born. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. We're talking about a ruler here. We're talking about someone who's coming to rule. We're talking about a king. We're talking about the promise of a king. The promise of a prince. And you see, this has been the story of the Bible right up until this point. The Bible has been repeatedly, repeatedly talking about this promise of one to come, one who's going to come, one who's going to set God's people free, one who's going to free them once and for all. It's coming. It's coming. And that's what this promise is about. A coming of a king. You see, right back in the very beginning with Genesis, just as we saw before, God promises after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit that they were not meant to eat of. God promises in the midst of the curse as he curses the serpent and says, you will have animosity, you have conflict between man and you. He promises and he says, but one will come, a seed of this woman, a descendant of this woman will come. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. Right back at the very beginning, God promises freedom once and for all from the devil. Someone is coming who's going to set God's people free from affliction. And we move forward to, to Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Moses is giving a great speech on the plains of Moab and the people are all around. And Moses says to the people, he says, there's coming another one just like me, a prophet. Listen to what he teaches you. There's someone else coming. There's another king coming. Come forward a bit more and God sets judges, rulers over his people who come, but repeatedly they fail, they mess up. They judge for a while, they rule God's people, and then they just go corrupt and exploit the poor and turn their back on God and God punishes them and they suffer and then raises up another judge who sets his people free. And again, another judge comes and again he turns corrupt and wicked and again God punishes the people and again he raises up a new leader and it's time and time again, failure, failure, and the people say, look, look at the nations around us. We want a king. Give us a king like everyone else around us. And God takes a man called Saul. And he anoints him as king. He was a, a good-looking man, a tall man, head and shoulders above the rest, it says. But again, turns his back on God and is corrupt. And at last, God finds David, a new king. He takes the crown from Saul and places on David, his son, and he, he pro, uh, David, his servant, and he says to David, he says, look at you who I'm well pleased with. I am going to make you a promise. Your son will build the temple for my name to dwell in forever. And on your descendant, a descendant, someone who's coming after you, I will give him your kingdom, my kingdom, and he will reign Forever. Forever. And so the people of God wait. And they wait. And they wait. And here they are waiting still. In a world a mess with rebellion and wickedness, God promises a king, a prince, someone who saved them. That's my third point, the prince. Well, who is this promised king? Who is this prince? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ. 
And I want to spend the next little bit on this final point, looking at the four names that we read in this passage. So if you've got your Bibles open, open it up to our passage again, and that verse 6. And let's look at that first name. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. You know, the word wonderful here in this passage means something like miraculous. Like wonders, signs and wonders, miraculous. Miraculous Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Our King, Jesus Christ, is a wonderful Counselor. His eyes, they stare deeply and they see everything that's hidden. He looks at you and he sees everything in your heart, everything's laid bare before him. All your shame, all your joy penetrates into your deepest being. But his counsel, his advice is wonderful. Not like the kings of this earth. He's he's a wonderful counselor. Well, he's a wonderful counselor, but he's also almighty God. That's the most surprising one of this passage. Almighty God himself. Emmanuel, he's called in the previous chapter. God with us. God himself. And I think this is the point where we see, begin to see the scandal of Christmas. The amazing nature of Christmas, of the coming of Jesus. I mean, scandalous. Think about what we've been talking about. The God who breathed by his word and all the whole universe came into being. Now think of the vastness of that universe. Now think with me. One light year. One light year is 9.5 trillion kilometers. That's 9.5 million million kilometers. One light year. Well, friends, we live 27,000 light years away from the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. 27,000 times 9.5 million million kilometers. Massive. Consider the sun. The sun. 5,500 degrees Celsius at its surface. Burning 620 million tons of hydrogen every second. One of our best guesses, 100 to 400 billion stars in our galaxy. Our galaxy, one of our best attempt at least, is one of 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. The universe is vast. It's massive. And God breathed it by the word of his mouth. And here we stand, specks on a speck, suspended in a ray of light in the middle of space. But God would promise that he would come down onto our speck. A scandal. That he would come down onto our speck, not even to live the life of a king like he deserves but born into squalor. The squalor of a borrowed stable. Ah, scandalous love. While the third one, the third name, we have wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, Everlasting Father. This doesn't mean that he is God the Father. No, it means that he is eternally fatherly in his nature. 
He's eternally loving and gracious. He's the best of fathers. Don't think angry, distant, abusive father. Think loving, gracious, kind. And that's eternally his quality. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. We see a humble king. We see a loving king. We see a fatherly king. A king who's all about welcoming people. Who's all about receiving the broken and the hurting and the weak. We see a fatherly king. Everlasting father. Well, lastly, we see Prince of Peace. Why don't you open your Bibles again to Isaiah 9, 6, and let's read those last two verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is Prince of Peace because he will reign. He is Prince of Peace because he will come and establish his kingdom. He will come again and he will reign. And his kingdom knows and his kingdom will know no end. And he will rule with justice and with power and so all wars will cease. All fighting will end. All evil will be destroyed. Our, our world will be returned to as it was in the beginning, but better and more as God's people dwell with him. But he's prince of peace, not only because he'll come and he'll reign, but because he made peace between God and between you. He made peace between God and between you, a rebel. And that's the scandal of Christmas. And that's love, unspeakable. All of love that we speak about in the world pales in comparison to this. That the King of all glory, that the God, the Son of God who spun the spun the stars in the sky, who made the universe, who breathed it out by the, the, the word of his mouth, who created this world and made it good, and who the people that he made turn their backs on him in rebellion would come and humble himself and live a perfect, humble life and be rejected by the people who he loved most, who would be despised and who would be crucified who would endure one of the most despicable, horrible deaths known to man, enduring the wrath of God for sin, the anger of God against every injustice in this world, against every wrong that you have committed personally, taking it all in full on that cross and doing it with you in mind. For God so loved the world, gave his only son that anyone who believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our greatest problem is our need to be saved from the wrath of an angry God but our greatest joy and our greatest example of love is that the prince would come and die in your place. Friends, if you're sitting here and you don't know him, he sees you. He sees all the junk in your life and he loves you just the same. Well, this is the gift, the great gift that requires a response. The testimony of scripture is 
and according to our Lord Jesus himself, is repent and believe, and you will be saved. That's all we require, all he requires is repentance, it's changing your mind, it's saying sorry for the rebellion that you've done and saying, I trust in you, I believe in your finished work, I put my life in your hands, I give my life to you, Lord, I receive your gift from me. And the Bible says you will be saved. You will be saved. I think some people think that they can trust in their own goodness to save them that they can trust in the fact that they're good people and they've done good in their lives and that will be enough to save them. Well, God speaks to you from his word and he says your good works are not enough. You cannot save yourself. My standard is perfection and you have sinned and fallen short of my glory. You're in desperate need of salvation. Christ alone is all we have. Nothing else will do it. Just trust in him. I think there's some people probably here today who feel the opposite and feel condemned by their sin and who feel if he only knew what I have done, he would not receive me. Well, friend, the testimony of scripture is that the blood of Jesus is powerful. Powerful to cleanse from all sins. Powerful than the most atrocious, hidden, secret thing that you have done. Washes it all away. Name your sin. It's washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of the Prince who came and died. Wonderful counselor. Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Although we are but a tiny speck, living on a tiny blue speck in a vast expanse of the universe, we are recipients of the greatest promise of love ever seen. And though we are rebellious specks, at best we see a God determined to love and who promises the gift of his very own son. Jesus Christ is the greatest promise of love ever made. I want you to bow your heads um, as we move to pray and ask the band to come up. And As you sit there with your your eyes closed, I just want to address people in this room who... Just in this moment, are uh, just aware that you have you have never asked Jesus to be your Lord and King. You've, ne- you've never asked Him. You've never asked for His forgiveness for the wrongs that you've committed, and you've never asked Him to take your sin and to give your life to follow on Him. And I just want to, I just. I don't want to manipulate you at all, but I believe I don't need any explanation. You know who you are. And, and if you're sensing that at the moment, that you need to do business with God, I believe that's His Spirit speaking to you. And I, I just want to address you. And I don't want to embarrass you. What I want to do is I want to pray for you. And so what I ask you to do is, if that's you... I, Again, I don't want to embarrass you, but just, if you could stick your hand in the air, I'd, I'd love to pray for you. Um, in fact, I'd love to read out a prayer that you could, that you could say uh, just in the quiet of your heart or out loud. I mean, it's up to you. It's just to do business with God right now. And the prayer goes like this. It says, Lord Jesus, I admit I'm not good. I've broken your laws and lived my own way. Thank you for living a perfect life and dying as a substitute in my place. Today I turn from my sin and I and I trust in you. If if that's you, could you just stick your hand in the air? I'd I'd love to pray for you. Um, Why don't we just turn now and just join with me in praying? And I'm going to pray for us. 
And I'm going to read this prayer. And um, if you'd like to pray to ask to receive this gift from the Lord, why don't you join with me and just pray, and even just in the quiet of your own heart. Let's pray. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh Lord, we come before your throne with nothing but our sins, Lord, and overwhelmed with thanks for all you are and all you've done. Lord, I pray for us, Lord. I just pray you would help us to live in light of this truth, Lord, in light of your amazing love, Lord. May we never lose sight of your gospel and your glory. May we never lose sight of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is seeking you or yet to receive you, Lord. I just pray that they might know your love and know your nearness despite of what is happening in their lives, Lord. And I just pray you'd, you'd be with us now as we pray. And if you're yet to receive him as Lord, would you just join with me out loud or in the quiet of your hearts praying this prayer. Lord Jesus, I admit I am not good. I have broken your laws and lived my own way. Thank you for living a perfect life and dying as my substitute. Today I turn from my sins and trust in you for God's forgiveness and acceptance. Amen. Well, friends, if you pray that prayer, the message of Scripture is that the angels enthroned are rejoicing with you. God receives you simply by faith and His grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ and it alone. We would love to meet with you and talk with you and encourage you about how you can progress in walking with Him. So why don't you uh, come and grab me after the service. Come down the front. Any of our leaders would love to speak with you. Uh, But we're going to continue on in praising uh, our risen King, our Lord Jesus.